Hello, hello, and welcome to Into the Light. I'm your host, Dulce Rivera, and in today's episode, we will dive deep and talk about trauma and suicide. The story I shared today is incredibly powerful, but before we get to it, I want to remind the audience that although this series spans different facets of mental health, it is not meant to be a substitute for counseling, because I'm just an undergraduate student, not a licensed therapist. If you think you would benefit from talking to a therapist, please don't hesitate to reach out. At the end of this episode, I've listed various useful resources that can provide additional help and support. So let's hear the story. Trigger warning. The following story contains highly sensitive information about suicide, trauma, depression, and anxiety. It also highlights events of individuals involved in car crashes and details the trauma of losing someone you love. As you get older, you start to piece together some stories from your past that begin to outline an arc of who you are. When I was around 19 or 20, I hit a stage where I had a very catastrophic event happen to me. After recovering from that event, I started to look back at this trail of breadcrumbs that I had left over my life because of past traumas and past events. And I started piecing together the story and started to come to terms with what mental health meant to me, and ultimately what I would classify as the demon living inside me, coming to terms with what they look like, how they act, how they interact, and how to interact with them in a way that's healthiest for myself and equally, if not more so important, healthiest for those that are around me that I care about. Demons can often put on your entire skin suit and wreak havoc on the world around you, and then, once you wake up after a good night's sleep, they're gone. And you're like, wait, now I have to deal with your mess? What are you doing, man? So I started out my sophomore semester moving to Seoul. I didn't want to go. I wanted to take a gap year. But that wasn't quote-unquote allowed. I am very fortunate that my parents pay for my college, so I wanted their approval to take a gap year. I needed to take a pause, but at that point, they didn't feel comfortable giving it. So I went to South Korea. Seoul was rough. We were living in Gangnam. There were two beds in my apartment, but on the worst days, there were five people sleeping in our room, two sleeping in my roommate's bed, two sleeping in my bed, and one person sleeping on the floor. We were all sad, so, so very much, but not telling anyone about it. There were a bunch of different factors that came into this, but the one biggest was finding out about one of my best friends from high school. Somebody that I had spent time with, more than an hour a day, every day, my entire senior year of high school. I loved him, and I still do. I found out that he died in a car crash along with his mom and dad, and they were burned beyond recognition. And I remember being told by another one of my friends. He texted me in the morning. He was like, hey, have you heard about Oscar? And I was like, no, what's up? And he said, Oscar is dead. I just remember feeling totally numb. When you experience trauma like that, your mind and body are thrown into this world where structure no longer exists. And that's easy to say because I'm saying it with language that has structure. But the idea is the absence of anything. And I can't communicate that to you because we need a shared structure to communicate. All I can say is that if you've experienced the true absence of structure, it's terrifying. It's like you're lost in a void. And that's how I felt. Lost. I felt 
felt like nothing mattered and everything mattered. So I just cried in my bed for a little while and texted my then girlfriend and let her know what was going on. She came over and I just kept on crying. Didn't tell anybody else for a while. I remember taking that day off from everything. I just went to a cafe and just started drawing. I think once you start to take mental health seriously, you also realize that you can't really run at a consistent pace in the world. With school and especially with work, you're expected to show up at a consistent pace. The difficulty with that is that mental health as a journey is personal, and it's something that everybody has to tread on their own. If you've ever beaten your own path, sometimes you run up against obstacles that just take longer to figure out. I was fighting very, very hard, and it took most of my energy, so I couldn't go to class, and I couldn't achieve at the level that I know I'm capable of. I think I missed like 16 classes and three assignments that I couldn't turn in. I was drinking like eight or nine coffees a day, which is not good. I learned that later. If you're dealing with depression, you don't want to give yourself anxiety. I didn't really understand how I could show up consistently for class if I was spending so much time unwrapping what the fuck was going on in my brain. Ultimately, I would say that's the most suicidal I've ever been. And I say that with a very heavy heart and very heavy hands. I know what I'm saying. I know the power of those words. And I'm saying with full knowledge, I was suicidal. I didn't think I would make it out of soul alive. Some part of me still thinks I shouldn't have. This experience ramped up into a 72-hour panic attack, which is not fun. I mean, you run a marathon in four and a half hours and that sucks. But imagine not being able to sleep because you're shaking. Imagine not being able to eat because you're shaking and you're just disassociated. You're not in your body. The only thing I remember from the 72 hours is the people that I care about giving me tours of both heaven and hell in my head. Heaven was a one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. I had a dog. I was a firefighter. I don't remember what hell was. I had to come to terms with the idea that death was the solution to the pain that I was experiencing. I think that there are a lot of people that think that therapy and psychiatry are the end-all fix for mental health. It reminds me of the 1950s perspective in the US about policing. Give the police a huge budget and make them handle everything. I think that therapy is quickly running into the risk of being the catch-all solution in mental health. But it's not, and neither is medication. Everyone was saying, Find a therapist, talk about your problems. And so that's what I did. I found a therapist and talked about my problems. The difficulty is that therapy is personal. Licensed therapists have individual approaches to practices. Some therapists show empathy, some don't. And when you're dealing with a mental health issue, you also don't know the kind of therapist you need. You're left with this external pressure telling you to find a therapist and internal pressure knowing you can't find one that works for you. It's like you're dating therapy. You need to find the therapist that works for you. But if you're in the middle of a mental health journey, you need someone to show up and just be good. And that didn't happen for me in Seoul. The therapist I was able to see had a method that was not good for me. The only story I'll say from that time was I remember feeling this very intrinsic need to share with them an entry that I had made in my journal because I needed help thinking through it. When I got done reading it, I looked up. They were crying. 
and I think ended the therapy session. So I was like, what am I going to do now? I went to a psychiatrist, got some medication. I was on medication for like two days, but I hated it. And then my mom flew to Seoul and took me out. It was like mid-December or something. I'm sparing a ton of details. But as an adult, I would say that that was the moment I finally summited my mental health mountain. And I started to look back on my life at the breadcrumbs and began thinking, oh, maybe this is a thing I've always had to fight. The first time I ever had any form of suicidal ideation was when I was eight years old. I had broken my femur, the big thigh bone. Breaking your femur is apparently on the same pain threshold as giving birth, which is crazy. I don't know if that's true. I'm not a doctor, but that's what I remember the doctors telling me. Looking back on it, that's where my mental health journey started. I was in a full body cast for six months at eight years old. I couldn't go to school. I didn't want to see my friends, anything like that. When I finally got it off, I was doing physical therapy because I had to learn how to walk again since my leg muscles had atrophied. I don't know why, but the physical therapist discharged me saying, he's never going to run right again, which was bullshit because I ran today with great form out in the snow. You can imagine the pain that a child goes through being told these things. He doesn't understand the impact of all of it. All he's hearing is this advice coming from a doctor, and in the mind of a child, doctors are deities. Parents are deities. I took the doctor's words as truth for a little while, but after a few years, listening to a doctor gets old. So I just decided to do it myself if they weren't going to help. Fast forward a little bit to fifth grade. A best friend of mine was involved in a car crash where he lost his big brother, his mom, and his dad, which was incredibly painful. I remember my mom telling me, do you want to go to the wake? And I was nine or 10. I remember changing my mind four or five times, but ended up saying, no, I don't want to go. I spent that time watching Curious George, the movie, and just felt terrible. Then fast forward a little bit more to seventh grade. That same friend had moved in with his grandparents, and then his grandma passed away from breast cancer, which is like, dude, oh my god, this man is going through pain. He always reminds me of Job from the Bible. By seventh grade at 13, he had lost his mom, his dad, his big brother, and his grandma. So all he had was his little sister and his grandpa. Then I decided to skip eighth grade and go to a different high school. I wanted to challenge myself, so I went to a school that had the IB program. But when I left, he took his own life. He overdosed on pills. I wasn't his best friend, but we were friends. I carry this weight with me, always wondering if I could have done something. I just feel some sense of responsibility about that. It was just hard. At 14 years old, losing somebody to suicide. That really sucked. I'm painting this very large arc of what I would say are the two moments in my life where I left. I left my friends that I had grown up since kindergarten to go to the IB. And I lost a friend. And then you know I went through high school with people that I cared about. And then I left the United States to go to Seoul. And I lost a friend. So I looked back and thought to myself, I am a plague. Slowly but surely, the world is going to take people that are closer to you over and over again until it's you. At least, that's what I thought for a while anyway. Mental health is stigmatized. It still is. I think that compulsive suicidal ideation is something that other people latch onto as suicidality. 
But there's a difference between having those thoughts and wanting to take action. For a while, I had the two mixed. I had these thoughts that kept coming in and I couldn't control them and I didn't know what to do about them. But everyone was like, oh no, he's suicidal. Treat him as though he is suicidal. If someone is suicidal, they deserve everybody in their community to show up for support. But if someone has compulsive suicidal thoughts, they need help working through those thoughts. If somebody's actually suicidal, if they are planning to take action and they are harming themselves, then you should take away some of their autonomy because their autonomy is dangerous. But when somebody has compulsive suicidal ideation, what they need is help dealing with where those thoughts come from and how to deal with them on their own. You need the tool set. And I've been working for years now to develop that tool set. I live by a few values now that I wouldn't have beforehand. The first and the most ever-present is those that have the courage to speak up should. Those that feel confident speaking up about their story. Those that can articulate it in a way that other people can understand. Those that have some type of conclusion about what happened to them should speak up, even if it's still ongoing. People need to speak up and say, you're not alone. I would say the second value is treat your time with the same care a billionaire treats their money. If you were Warren Buffett and you had billions upon billions of dollars, where would you put it? Would you spend it on green tech? Because I would spend it on green tech. I would spend it on ending or combating racial injustice. I would spend it on making sure women have the rights to their own bodies. I would fight for the things I care about. Now, most of us aren't Warren Buffett. So what do you have? You have time. So find areas in your life that are force multipliers for the things you care about and spend your time on those things. You don't have a million dollars, or maybe you do, but everyone has an hour. And so spend that hour investing in the problems you care about. Start working on a thing you care about regardless of the money you have, regardless of anything else. And so I think that accomplishes this idea of a mental health journey, where you're forging your own path and learning to deal with and live with your demons on your own. It creates this world where you're your own protagonist and antagonist. You're fighting every day. So it's important to take the skills that you learn fighting for your own mental health journey and for your own good and then apply them to the world. Because truly, from the bottom of my heart, I believe somebody that can forge their own journey to true mental health acceptance of what they need in this world, those people are very talented. But I'm not bragging about myself. I'm taking myself out of the equation. I'm talking about the people that do fight every day. I think what they may not see in themselves is that they're incredibly talented, persistent, and incredibly thoughtful. And the fact is, we need more of those people. We need people that can fight for themselves because those people can also fight for others. They know what the pain feels like. The third point is to remember that your brain and your body are dumb pieces of meat. And they need very, very basic things. Basically, what I'm saying is that you live in a meat tube and you need to take care of it so your brain feels okay. And once your brain feels okay, it'll start taking care of the meat tube. Once your body feels okay, it'll start taking care of the brain. I'm not really saying anything new. You've got to sleep. You have to track your caffeine. And remember from before, don't give yourself anxiety. Track your food and listen to what your body actually wants and feed it. Your body's pretty smart. It's evolved for quite some time to be pretty good at keeping you walking forward. 
we need to start getting this connection between the mind and body and connecting them with what you feel because what you feel is ultimately how your body has evolved to at this point for centuries. So feed your body good food. The last comment I'll make on the third point is I was listening to a podcast with the dog whisperer. He said, dogs are really simple because once you see enough of them, you understand what they need. He said, all dogs need five things. They need to run, they need to eat, they need to poop, they need to sleep, and they need to play. Those are the five things. I might be misremembering, the, but the point stands. If a dog does those five things, they're fine. They wake up, they stretch, they play a little bit, they eat. It's very simple. Humans are pretty simple too. Do the thing that gives you serotonin. For me, that's running. I don't know what it is for other people, but what's the thing that makes you feel content? You need that. You need something that makes you feel content. What gives you dopamine? What thing pushes you forward? For me, that's work. And so I work because it gives me dopamine, because it creates the chemical in my brain, and I need that. Humans need to eat. Humans need to sleep. Humans need to poop. We need these things. The older you get, the more you realize these little antiquated sayings are really true. You understand them in more depth. As an adult, your parents aren't here anymore. You gotta be your own parent. Sometimes you just gotta force yourself to do it. Find and do the things that give you the good chemicals. That's what your brain needs. For me, it's running, it's working, it's joking, it's cooking. I think life is a process of continually discovering and accepting these things as pillars in your life. They may change, so be open to that. But once you find something that gives your body and your mind the stuff it needs, stick with it. So yes, speak up if you can. Invest your time like you would invest your money. And feed your meat tube and your meat computer. And above all else, don't forget the strength it takes to fight a mental health battle. And don't let that strength go to waste. We need good people that can fight for themselves in this world because they can also fight for the good of others. This is Dulce speaking again. To the individual who shared this story, thank you for speaking up about your experience and for sharing such an impactful and genuine story. Your message is one brimming with hope, and I truly hope it inspires and helps our listeners. After hearing this story, I looked up the statistics associated with suicide among college students. My findings were quite shocking. In the US, suicide is the second leading cause of death among college students, and the suicide rate for that population has tripled since 1950, according to the American College Health Association. In one study of 67,000 students, one in five stated that they had thoughts of suicide during the academic year. These statistics are alarming, and yet suicide remains highly stigmatized and hardly spoken about. I wanted to understand these topics better, so once again I invited Dr. Will Meek to speak with me. Hi, Will. Nice to hear from you again. Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, great to be with you again. I'm Dr. Will Meek. I'm a licensed psychologist. I'm the global director of mental health and wellness at Minerva. Great. So to start us off, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about how can trauma 
influence our mental health throughout our lives. Well, I think the story that you mentioned really captures the power of painful and overwhelming events and experiences and information and things that that person didn't even themselves witness firsthand, but even the hearing of those types of things was traumatizing to them. And I think the way that impacts us, one, it's different for everybody. And I think that's part of the mystery of how we experience trauma, that some people have the type of destabilizing experience that the person had in the story, and then other people would handle it in a different way that would also be just equally a challenge to understand. And I think that's something where there's a huge gap still in what we know about trauma in general. We have some sense of what's happening for folks, but why would it affect one person this way, another person this way, another person this way, the exact same type of thing and the exact same experience. So there's a piece of that that I think is really crucial to point out is that it's hard to predict and hard to know how someone will experience any kind of certain event. Now, I think for this, you know, this person was really talking about an experience of that information from that point on kind of causing this traumatic reaction, this kind of destabilizing, confusing, a kind of loss of language and framework where there's difficulty even putting words to it and even being able to communicate to somebody about it. And I think that particular experience can feel very isolating, can feel very alone in that, especially other people who have maybe experienced the same thing, had different reactions. And I think that is part of what's so challenging about experiencing something like that is sometimes the aloneness in it. So besides that, I think those things can have totally different courses too, from being able to resolve with certain kind of support. Some people will need more formal treatment and some people it will be an ongoing struggle for a lot of years afterwards. So it's really hard to say, how does this impact our mental health? It's just like almost impossible to really predict. There's some folks that will have some experiences of post-traumatic growth where they end up really experiencing a terrible event or situation where they end up through that recovery process, feeling like they've had some sort of enhancement in their life through that journey. Mm. But I think it's very hard to see that or experience that while you're in it. Yeah. So it's not like a particular traumatic event is going to affect one individual in one particular way. It really is a very personalized thing, it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. The next question I wanted to ask is how can trauma contribute to suicide and this idea of having suicidal thoughts versus actually being suicidal? So I think they, the person telling that story accurately captures a way that I think about some of that distinction as well, that there's a lot of people that experience some kind of suicidal thinking or thoughts just in their life at some point. They can come up for all kinds of reasons. And then there's a difference between that and suicidal intent, which is what I think they're articulating as being this difference of I'm having thoughts about ending my life or not being here anymore or, or sometimes fantasizing about it or thinking of all these types of things. And there's a difference between that thought process and I really want to do that. And I have some intentionality to make that happen. The latter definitely, just like they kind of mentioned, I think needs really professional resources and attention. I think on the extreme side of that, maybe some of the very brief autonomy changes, if they're really close to that, or it's a really severe risk to save their life. Most mm -hmm. people don't even need that, but just kind of need a lot of help and support to get through those types of things and can still function in their lives, even going through some of that. But that is mm -hmm. the real separator. 
clinically speaking, some people in uh, emergency services or that deal with a lot of folks struggling with suicide would call the former that sort of like amount of suicidal thinking like their baseline. You know, how much is this just part of their life? How much is this just kind of a thread that has some other function in their thought processes? And then separating that from, I really want to accomplish this. I think the former, sometimes when you really get in the nitty gritty with somebody in their thinking about this sort of thing, you start to learn that there's some way that even some of those thought processes end up being part of some kind of coping. Mm. Um, It's almost the opposite of actually wanting to die, but it's some sort of understanding of continuous options that are available, even one they would never pick, but that there's something kind of okay about that and feeling in control about that. And I think that's part of where the trauma comes into play. So when we're really reeling in loss in a traumatic outcome or experience as we're working through something, sometimes our brain can start to try to come up with all sorts of ways to get through it. Mm -hmm. And I think one of those things is ending our life. I don't want to feel like this anymore, or I'm so alone or so confused Mm -hmm. and, and hurt by this that that starts to become something that's appealing or something that's relieving to think about. And so it kind of opens this pathway up. Mm-hmm. that maybe we wouldn't have had before. And then for some other folks, if that really kind of catches them for some reason, or there's some other parts of their life or other parts of their own psychology that click with that differently, that becomes a little more of a scary um, mm-hmm. situation. Yes. I just want to make the distinction clear again for the audience that there is that difference between having these thoughts, but then actually the intent that comes along with it. As you were mentioning, it could be a type of coping mechanism that you adopt, but if it doesn't become more of that like serious intent, then the approach to to dealing with it might be different. Yeah, my recommendation is always if you start having thoughts like that, meet with somebody, Minerva at CAPS or another type of provider and just check Mm -hmm. it out with them and be able to talk about it. And the provider should help you be able to sort through that and make sense out of it with you. So I'm always Mm -hmm. thinking like if you have any thoughts like that, especially if they're newer or connected to something like this, sometimes those types of things can develop into things that are more concerning. Sometimes meeting with somebody and realizing maybe this is okay for now and there's not a lot of danger, but this is just part of where you're at at the moment is okay. Mm -hmm. But I really think that anyone out there having those experiences, meet with somebody, kind of feel it out. And I think especially then if you're having those thoughts where you're really thinking about doing something to end your life or to take steps closer to that, that you really need to talk to somebody more Mm -hmm. urgently. I mean, Mm -hmm. we'd love to do it at CAPS and there's a lot of other great resources. One of the things that a client kind of mentioned to me at one point, and I've had several people describe this, one client from way back in the day and then another person who's kind of a researcher in this space talked about the idea of being at your best, you're 100 steps away from ending your life. It's nothing you would consider. There would take many, many chains of events to somehow lead to something like that. And that some people who have that baseline suicidality are always in the like 80s. It's a little bit closer to that, but they're still a long way away from that. It's not really something they're considering. And then people who have this as part of their life more customarily, it's just something that's been around for a while, can start to notice when there's a different kind of danger zone in that scale and when they get closer to making some kind of attempt. And those experiences are really different and there's a lot of gradients in there. And that's Mm -hmm. why, again, I think talking to a professional is a great idea. But that being able to recognize where you're at in that, if it's just a more common experience for you, it's crucial. A follow-up question to that that I had is for an outsider, for a friend viewing 
or, or hearing from, from their friend that they're having these type of thoughts, what would you recommend the friend do? I really would recommend, let's say they didn't even hear the friend is having these thoughts yet, but they're worried about it, or mm-hmm. they're sort of saying some stuff that makes you think, are they okay? The advice is really to very compassionately ask directly if they're thinking about ending their life. I mean, everybody does that a little bit different. Some people want to say, are you thinking about killing yourself? Other people might say, mm-hmm. you know, I'm concerned, like, you know, are you having suicidal thoughts? Is there, is there something I can do to help with that? And so any other kind of way you might imagine phrasing it. But I think the first move is to really feel comfortable asking. And that like this person in the story also kind of had these kind of regrets and so forth from the other part of their life and worries about it. And there's also a really common thing when we have somebody in their life. One, it's outrageously painful for people. And there's a lot of folks questioning, should I have known? Should I have done something? Should I have thought of that? There's a good uh, a colleague of mine who took his own life, who was the counseling director at University of Pennsylvania. Mm. I'm at UPenn like two years ago. And he and I had done a webinar together in July. And in September, he died and, mm. and committed suicide. And uh, you know, I've talked to many folks about all this sort of stuff. And instantly, it was once the news kind of broke, it was sort of like, did I miss something? What should I have done? He said this kind of thing during the phone call. Should that include me in? It's like that kind of thinking is very challenging. So the first mm-hmm. thing I think, if you're having thoughts about that, every once in a while, you might be those intuitions, you might be right. They are struggling with something. And people who generally get questions like that from somebody who's confident enough to say it, there's a hot, way higher likelihood they're going to say, actually, kind of, yeah. And then there's an opportunity to get into it, which we'll talk about in a sec. But I think the other part of that is to not ask, hey, you're not having like suicidal thoughts or something, right? Mm. That communicates like, I don't want to talk about that. I'm worried about that, but I'm kind of not a safe person to get into. But being able to Mm -hmm. frame it in a way of like, I can go in there and talk to you about this sort of stuff. You might not have the skills to figure it out, but that you care enough to ask that in a sincere way where you can hear the answer, that's important. And we do a lot of training for Minerva faculty and staff on how to have those types of conversations. And I think friends and family are just as crucial, if not more so, in being Mm -hmm. able to kind of notice that sort of stuff and ask. So part two, I think when somebody says that, the first piece is really just to be a good listener. Thank you so much for telling me, like, can you share more about it? I I love you. I care about you. I want to be here for you. Help Mm -hmm. me know kind of where you're at. And hopefully they share a little bit more. Sometimes they might not want to. The big key there in those conversations is really one, being able to, in a healthy way, encourage them to connect with somebody, whether that's CAPS or some other type of resource. I care about you. I want you to get some help. I'm not a professional, but even if these aren't troubling you too much, have you met with anybody? Can I help you schedule the appointment? Is there anything standing in the way? I could go with you. You know, is there some way we can kind of do this together? And then, you know, I think the other part is if you hear stuff that is kind of more immediately concerning, figuring out how to take some steps and get professional resources involved matters. So at Minerva, wherever you're at, kind of national, internationally, you can use the crisis services that my SSP has for free. So there's basically through the app or through the number, you can call anywhere 24-7 and be prioritized and get right to the front of the line. I encourage people to call with their friends. Be like, what if we just called together and just talk to them and I'll be here with you? Mm-hmm. And if they really aren't comfortable with that, being able to say, you know, I'm happy to come back in a little bit if you want to do it privately. But I think getting them some professional help is really crucial. The last thing is if you're having friends that are struggling with this or you're in those conversations or even just had one, I think get in your own help 
and support and navigating that matters too. Sometimes those conversations themselves can be destabilizing for us, let alone if we've had our own experiences, that sort of stuff. It can really bring it close to home. So the friend themselves kind of talking to someone at CAPS or other friends for support matters a lot. And I think big picture, this is why having relationships and a community and a network of people who are open to talking about mental health issues that understand the experiences that don't stigmatize and pathologize people that are struggling is part of why those communities end up healthier because we can all have mm-hmm. people to turn to that get it and are supportive. And so my hopes are that people will feel confident and comfortable having those conversations and getting people to help when it's needed. Absolutely. Having those conversations, as you were saying, is a good first step to try to help. Something else I wanted to bring in is how does stigma contribute to talking about suicide? Stigma prevents us from coming forward and and asking for help or thinking there's something that is accessible that can make a difference that's appropriate for you. Or that when we have low levels of stigma and higher levels of mental health education, we understand of what this might mean differently. And in a course of our lives, understand how things like this can come and go and how they're connected to the events around us and our histories and our immediate experience of the world. So I think the more there's stigma, the more there's pathologizing any aspects of this kind of human experience, the, the more isolating it is and the harder it is to come forward and get help. So that's part of why destigmatization campaigns and efforts matter so much because it helps people feel like, oh, this is a thing I can deal with. This is okay for me to get help. This is okay for me to talk about in my community and with my friends and with my network rather than this really shameful, scary thing. It can still feel like that, but I think the more we can tear down some of those barriers, the better for everybody. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Will, for this conversation. And I really hope that it touches our audience in one way or another. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate being able to talk about these sorts of things on this podcast. And I think this thing by itself is one of those efforts to be able to help tell these stories and help people know they're not alone and hopefully help people come forward and, and get some help if, if they need it. So thanks so much for having me on. And it was great talking with you. Trauma and suicide can be difficult topics to talk about. There exist a lot of resources to help college students. Firstly, a highly important resource is the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you or any of your friends are undergoing suicidal ideation or thoughts, please don't hesitate to call at 1-800-273-8255. They provide free and confidential support to people in distress and are always available 24-7. Additionally, you can also visit their webpage called we can all prevent suicide. The page identifies different suicide risk factors and warning signs to keep a lookout for. If you don't know where to begin a conversation about suicide or mental health, the Seize the Awkward campaign provides various resources and conversation starters to help promote healthy mental health conversations. And as Dr. Meek mentioned, you can also download the MySSP app where you can talk or chat with providers at any point. All of these resources are posted on the podcast website, www.intothelightpodcast.com. This episode concludes season one, but don't despair. Season two will be coming during the summer. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with the people you love. Reach out to your friends and tell them about the information you learned. 
Oftentimes, we don't know what experience others are going through, and sharing this story or the contents of this episode could help someone in need. If you would like to learn more about trauma and suicide and how it impacts college students, please go to our website, www.intothelightpodcast.com, where you can find the accompanying book chapter. Each chapter is aligned with the episode number, so you can read more about each topic discussed in this series. If you were inspired by the storyteller and would like to share a story of your own, you can also find the submission form on the website, where you will also be able to read all the stories. Thank you for tuning in this week. This was Into the Light with Dulce Rivera.